This is Gary Alstelford, and I'm looking into my Weequay Magic 8 Ball, and I never listen to the Order 66 podcast. Hey, this is Rodney Thompson. I'm the game designer of our Wizards of the Coast for the Star Wars role-playing game. Just wanted to call and say that the Order 66 podcast is awesome, and I want to keep hearing more of it, and may the force be with you. Execute Order 66. Coming at you live on Ustream and by podcast at d20radio.com. This is the Order 66 podcast, brought to you by mapsofmastery.com. Uh, welcome one and all, boys and girls, you know, everybody else who's listening to this Order 66 podcast, episode number 131 for March 27th, 2011, and uh, it's a little after 7 p.m. here in Dallas, Texas, and the funk that was with me two weeks ago when we did an episode is now firmly landed in La Casa de GM Chris, and... Uh, <laughs> we welcome what's left of GM Chris. And, yes, thank you. And the fact that he just... A yeoman's effort getting out of bed and doing the show, because if we didn't, who knows when we would actually get one done. It would be another week, so we wanted to get it done, and hopefully I can not throw up for the show, which yeah. would be nice. Hey, that'd be really cool if we actually air recorded it. I'm very tired of throwing up. Hey, we could use it on the GM Chris soundboard. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Lord. What is up, Gamer Nation? Uh, GM Chris here. And for those of you who may be tuning in for the very first time, this is, of course, the Order 66 podcast, the only podcast entirely devoted to Star Wars Saga Edition role-playing. Actually, that's not true anymore, is it? Because Threat no. Detected is now up. It is, and so we are no longer alone in the universe. Oh, and that makes me happy. It makes me so happy. I cannot tell you. Betty, Betty. Betty, Betty good to me. Oh, it's very, very, very good. Very good. But yes. But we have an exciting show planned for you guys today. And, um... Without further ado, how about it, boys, as we go into the new world? Accessing. Ah, good. New acquisitions. Greetings, Gamer Nation. My designation is KCK Sim, and this is your Hollow News Net update. Yay. So, without further ado, the featured podcast this week Ooh. is extending a current congratulations to Minis Mayhem on their 70th episode. God. Brev and Zen Dougie released the Champagne Room, 
This is a 90-minute glorious episode of uh, Minnie's Goodness, Star Wars Minnie's Goodness, Couch with the Boys' usual flavor of geekery and humor, and uh, will only cost your eternal soul. It's worth it, though. Yeah, it is. You guys continue their minis discussion from last episode by exploring the hottest female minis in the game. Mm-hmm. If you're a fan of Star Wars minis, gaming, if you're a minis junkies, if you're interested in just finding out more about it, dudes, and dudettes, especially if you're hot, give the episode a listen <laughs> and see if they talk about you. Uh-huh. And, and, I, oh, sorry. And, I was gonna, and, and, and. And what? And you can find more great podcasts at www.d20radio.com. All right. So I really wish that I would have had time to say this before you said that, but we have a new okay. show. <gasps> That's so exciting. Soggy Serial makes its debut on the air of D20 Radios. It's a new variety podcast, isn't it? It is a new variety podcast. They like take a look at a cereal box and then they go and they do stuff. So uh, take a look at the first one about Facebook. The first two, actually, about Facebook. It and sounds strange, but it's actually very funny. Yeah, and they, you know, they go about once a month or so. So you got Facebook, then you got Super Bowl, then you got Harry Potter, and uh, they're funny. So, you know, hey. But General Geekery Podcast, very nice. Glad to have it in the Variety Podcast section. Yeah, give it a shout. I mean, you know. Give it a listen. It's kind of cool. We're going to be adding uh, one at least or two more here in the very, very near future. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah, baby. It's going to be awesome, awesomeness. But, yeah, find all these and the rest at d20radio.com. Very nice. Juicy bits of web goodness. Uh, Mr. Sterling Hershey is back once again. And we got a bit of catching up to do on his Star Wars Wednesdays blog, which, you know, as usual, does not fail us in its level of pure awesome. So last week, Sterling posted up a really cool piece on gambling in the saga system. Um, like not only like how to make a gambling-centric character, but how to, gambling can affect your game and the underlying design decisions, flaws, and benefits behind the system. Uh, it's great reading, boys and girls. So hit me. Yeah. Loving you. Um, but this week, uh, Sterling treated us uh, with his own hand at some cartography. That's Sterling gives us his own map for a, a mountain outpost uh, usable in Star Wars or, or, or really any setting or system, uh, as well as a quick link to his new fantasy map portfolio. Ooh. Very exciting. And you can find these amazing articles and so much more right now at www.sterlinghershey.com. Dot com. Dot com. All right, boys and girls, convention time. <sighs> yes, indeed. So, um, yes, you know, that time yet again in the, in the world, in the year of convention madness. And this uh, giant convention season is poised to start really soon in a matter of six weeks or so. And uh, we want to remind you of a few of these that are coming up, and you should plan to attend if you possibly can. First of all, very near and dear to our hearts, ReaperCon 2011. The annual jubilation from our good friends over at Reaper Miniatures, held in Denton, Texas, May 19, 20, 21, and 22. Order 66 will, of course, be there, 
no doubt running games. And we just actually got a, an email from Brian. And uh, we'll be... Flesh out the details. Yes. And uh, we are all the, uh, the D20 uh, podcast GMs that are going to be running games will be featured on their website very shortly and the games that they are going to run in the time frames that they're going to run them. And so uh, you guys mark your calendars now and plan to attend. Also, at some point during that, we will uh, attempt to have a live broadcast of the oh, show. Yeah. Oh, yes. Just like we did last year. Oh, yeah. I'm excited. Yeah, it's going to be awesomeness. Well, up next on the docket is Origins Game Fair 2011. Oh, yes. For many, for many gamers, you know, this is the big show. And, and if you're in the Columbus, Ohio area, June 22nd to the 26th, there is zero reason you should not attend. Uh, D20 Radio's own Vader son, Duncan, will be hand, uh, hand on hand running four, yes, four Star Wars events. Uh, two sessions of Murder on the Executor, The Betrayal of Darth Revan, and The Death of the Star of Agnor. Excitement! Um, head over to www.originsgamefair.com for more info. Very exciting. And of course, the bigger show cometh Gen Con 2011, America's largest gaming convention held in Indianapolis, Indiana, August 4th through the 7th. And D20 Radio will be there as, oh, a small army. Um, I have already registered two official events for the con, uh, the first being a massive living style delve event for 18 players. Uh, the Black Nova Gambit will be a Star Wars Saga Edition event held on Thursday night from 6 to 10.30. Uh, the second is something I'm, I'm really happy to be doing. I'm really excited about this. We've registered a panel event, Creating a Successful Gaming Podcast, on Friday from 10 a.m. to noon. Uh, Dave, myself, hosts from Chronicles, Pathfinder Podcast, and Brew City Gamers will all be there for that uh, as a, a host, you know, sort of roundtable style panel where we answer listener questions and provide tips and tricks and tools to create a, a good podcast. Um, and of course, that's also going to be our semi-formal meet and greet for D20 Radio listeners. So be there. Okay? Okay. Um, gosh, what else for, for Gen Con? Well, What's you know, Cyril, our good friend, yeah. is going to be on site running pickup games. And uh, Vader's son as well will be, from what Ooh. I hear. Ooh. You know, so um, uh, DM Vincent, I think, is rolling. Uh, DM Vincent, of course, uh, roll for initiative and save or die. Is running officially registered um, original D and D games, so yeah. yeah, I mean details on that are forthcoming, and of course the uh, big announcement that is not yet even in our show notes because we just barely talked about them is that we're going to do. I think we are going to do, and we're going to do this in advance so that way we know and we're not stuck holding a bunch of extras. T shirts. We are going to do D shirt D twenty Radio Gen Con T shirts. Yeah. And not show specific, just D20 Radio t-shirts. So that when we do the meet and greet, and I think that's going to be on Friday. Well, it is? Yeah, we just Ten, said it was going to noon. be on Friday from 10 to noon. We are going to do t-shirts. Everybody who goes to that, obviously, we want them to wear their t-shirt. And we're, we don't know pricing and all that until we get everybody who says, yeah, we want t-shirts. But hopefully no more than 15 bucks. I'm hoping. One would hope. But, you know, here again, you never know. We're going to try and stick to black and white and keep our costs down. So we will have 
Gen Con shirts. For those of you that are going to Gen Con, and even if you're not going to Gen Con, hell, get a D20 Radio Gen Con shirt. That'd Heck be really, yeah. That'd be kind of cool, you know? It would be. I, I can't wait. It's going to be awesome. Yeah. So there. Yeah. End of story. And here's the even better part. The D20 Radio polo shirts have been digitized. Yes, indeed. And those I can get one off. Ooh. So what we're going to do um, with some of you, some of you uh, partners that have been partners for so long, we uh, appreciate your partnership for so long, um, have made this possible that we have uh, gotten our logo digitized and, and made polos and all that stuff. So uh, I believe we're going to, uh, one, we're going to, to put them out that obviously if you want to buy one you can buy one but for our partners we will be having a contest very soon and we'll be giving away anywhere from three to five depending on what we can afford and how much they are once we finally get a price of uh these d20 radio partner shirts or not just polo shirts is what i'm trying to say they don't say anything special but they're polo shirts and uh these are uh, the shirts that will make you look like a host because these are the shirts that the hosts are going to have. So It's going to be cool. Yeah. Exciting. Yeah. It's, um, and to answer your question in the chat room, is it nerdier than douchey or douchier than nerdy? It's definitely douchier than nerdy, in my opinion, because polo, especially if you wear it with collar up. Well, see, you know, that, that, that decision determines the douchier or nerdier right, right there. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So and you want to pop the collar on it, you can, you yeah. can, you know. And if you button all the way to the top, definitely nerdier than douchey. Exactly. Exactly. Definitely nerdier. Yeah. So there's ways you can do it. So there you go. Be looking for, um, be looking for news on that here coming soon before Gen Con. Twenty docking bay hosers. When it don't be making sense, we be making sense of it. Yes, the entire chat room is uh, talking in um, third person, which is really hilarious. <laughs> it's very colorful, you know. It's, it's very easy to see them. Very colorful, yes. Yeah. So, all right, D20 Docking Bay, where we answer your questions submitted by email, voicemail, lose a line, PM, forum post, any and all of those methods. And we have quite a few questions for you tonight, and we'll get started with those right away. This will be a somewhat abbreviated show, by the way, because of Chris's illness, but um, without further ado, we go to GM Jedi Scoundrel. He kicks off his questions tonight with um, thoughts about the infamous uh, Jedi Master ability, Serenity. And he says this. My character, who is working his way through Dawn of Defiance, finally made 13th level, and I took it to Jedi Master. I read the rule for Serenity, and it states that upon emergency emerging from the trance, which is a swift action, if you recall, your first attack roll or use the force skill check made in the following round is considered to be a natural 20. Yippee. My question has to do with the first roll. 
Is it your first attack or use the force roll, whichever comes first, or whichever the player chooses? The specific situation I'm thinking about has to do with Battle Strike. I would like to be able to emerge from a Serenity Trance, use the Battle Strike Force Power with a normal roll, because I'll almost certainly max it out with my normal Use the Force check, then use the Serenity Automatic 20 for the following attack. Any thoughts? Thanks in advance. Cheater. <laughs> That's a good question. Um, so Jedi Scoundrel is referring to the Serenity ability that... Uh, Jedi Masters gain at first level, uh, page 220, core rulebook. And as a reminder for those following along, Serenity lasts, uh, lets you enter a meditative state as a full round action. And you can remain in this state as long as you want. You're, you're fully aware, but you're helplless and you can't take any actions. So think, think Qui-Gon Jinn stuck behind the energy field while battling Darth Maul in episode one. You know, where he pauses and just gets down on his knees and just meditates. Yep. That is Serenity. Um, but the thing is when you come out of the Serenity Trance as a swift action as GM Jedi Scoundrel notes your first attack roll or use the force check made in the following round is treated as a natural 20 now to his question you don't get to choose it's bottom line it's the first attack roll or use the force check you make whichever comes first hey on the plus side you do get all your force powers back you would that's very true you know, that, that means you're kind of hosed if you want to use your Battle Strike tactic. Because, um, you know, Battle Strike takes a swift in its own right. And, you know, after the errata applies to the next attack you make before the end of your next turn. So you can't activate it before going into Serenity, as your next turn would be used up with Serenity. You know, um, there's, really, there's really not a lot of ways out of this. Um, so that, that's pretty much it. <laughs> yeah. So that answers your question, sir. Yep. That is it. That Thank is you. it. Thank you for your question. Good question, Ty. Big Dumb Gorian chimes in, and he returns with something, something dark side, and says this. The Sith Apprentice talent, Dark Scourge, gives a bonus to attack against Jedi characters. Jedi. Does this mean characters with levels in the Jedi class or characters who belong to the Jedi Force tradition? since it has been clarified that they are not the same thing. On the same note, the Fallen Jedi section of the class indicates that Jedi lose access to their light side force powers when they take levels in the Sith Apprentice Prestige class. This section suggests it is referring to the Jedi class, not the tradition. Does this mean you can have light side force powers as a Sith Apprentice if you don't take any levels in the Jedi class? No. <laughs> Fart bubbles on you, sir. Oh, okay. For those following along, uh, Gamorrean is referring to the Sith Apprentice Prestige class, page 222 of the core rulebook. Um, the talent Dark Scourge, which is on page 223, is actually pretty cool. It, it grants you a plus one dark side bonus on all attack rolls against Jedi characters. Basically, you, you hate them so much that you, you gain bonuses to your attacks. Um... And you surmise correctly, sir. Uh, a Jedi character is a member of the Jedi tradition, plain and simple. They need have no levels in the actual Jedi class, and they can still be members of the Jedi tradition. Um, as we've said, being a Jedi has absolutely nothing to do with taking actual levels in the Jedi class, which would probably be more accurate if they just named it Forcey Lightsaber Dude. <laughs> 
But, um, you know, as Rodney Thompson himself wisely alluded to on this very show, doing so would have made the game rather confusing for the novice player when they first picked up the book. So um, this, this really begs the question, which you bring up, page 224 details what happens when a fallen Jedi takes levels in this prestige class. It stipulates that such a character, quote-unquote, retains all his Jedi class features, including talents, force powers, bonus feats, and other abilities. The only exceptions are force powers with a light side descriptor, which the character can no longer use. Is it possible to have a fallen Jedi with no levels in the Jedi class? Sure. The text here is just being illustrative and speaking via the same principle that caused them to name the class Jedi in the first place. Does this mean that characters with no Jedi levels who enter Sith Apprentice can use light side force powers? No, of course not. It's just semantics. Bottom line, if you take levels in Sith Apprentice, you cannot use light side force powers. Period. You've, you've dedicated yourself to the dark side and the way of the Sith. This precludes you from using such abilities. So, that's where it is. Nice. All right, beautiful. All right, Bear Bells for the win. Wants to know this. Can you use flesh? I believe it's fleshé. Fleshé. Oh, I like flesh. It reminds me of Fletch. Great movie. All right, so fleshé with charging fire. Ooh. As a reminder for those at home, we are comparing two really nifty feats here. Uh, Flaché is a wicked feat from Galaxy of Intrigue, page 27. Has a prerequisite of uh, plus one base attack bonus, and it lets you, once an encounter, turn any natural attack roll of a 17 or better into a critical hit, as long as you're charging. Woo-hoo! Very nice. <laughs> Dave, you need to take that feat. <laughs> yeah. That jumps you from a 5% chance to a 20% chance. It's very nifty. Now, Charging Fire is a feat we've discussed before from the Core Rulebook, page 83, which allows you to charge and make a ranged attack instead of a melee attack um, without gaining the plus two to attack rolls. So the heart of this question, do the two work together? In other words, can I use the cool ability of Flaché on a ranged attack as long as I'm charging with Charging Fire? The answer? Sure, why not? There's no note that it can't work that way, and it just makes sense. The the, the ability of Flaché, despite the name, doesn't seem to be one unique to a melee-style attack. Yeah. So I have no problem letting it go. If you want to, if you want to, you know, use the two feats, you know, and suspend those two feats, it's a once in encounter ability. It's not that bad. Yeah. So. All right. So, last question is the longest question that we have. Okay. And this comes from Uncle Sporky. <laughs> He's a very new poster, and uh, probably a chess player, and. He chimes in with this question that we should not take laying down. (laughs) He asks this. It seems to me that despite the situational usefulness of going prone, the rules remain silent on a number of its important aspects, namely whether players can move while prone and the resulting can of worms. Near the end of episode 42, Rodney stated that prone players could move half their speed, and that this movement should trigger attacks of opportunity. But his comment sounded somewhat flippant, like, yeah, I guess you could allow it if you wanted to. Still, it's probably the most official word I've heard or found on the subject. My question is this. If players can move while prone, how does this affect abilities that allow for force movement? Is prone simply treated as any other status that modifies your base movement speed? Or is it a special a special situation that causes 
other movement effects to not apply. Can you take two move actions while prone or run while prone? <laughs> Come on, man. Use your sense. Can you withdraw while prone? Other talents and feats that do weird things with movement, how do they work? For example, the scouts keep together talent. When hit or missed, you can crawl your speed and, and, and uh, end it next to an ally. The nobles anticipate movement talent. As a reaction to an enemy moving, you grant you the speed, the, uh, can grant a prone ally the ability to crawl his speed. It's probably mm -hmm. easiest to say, dude, just freaking stand up. <laughs> I like that. But I can imagine a number of situations when it might be more advantageous or necessary to stay down. It's nitpicky, but still useful information to know, even if this is getting into house rule territory. So I'd like to hear your opinions on the subject. Well, did I think that... <clears throat> well, first of all, welcome to the forum, sir. Yours. There's, there's plenty of situations where it's advantageous to stay prone. Heck yeah. You know, I mean, you know, partial cover can become improved cover, man. You know, if you're prone behind a low wall. Sniper! Exactly. So it's totally advantageous. Um, now, as to your questions, <clears throat> know that Rodney's ruling really is the most official word on the subject, but it's honestly up to each GM. The raw does not specify that you can move while prone. Uh, that doesn't mean you can't, but it's going to be up to the GM to adjudicate how they, how they do it, because the rules just don't clarify it. Frankly, Rodney's ruling is how I usually run it. Um, but I think it's important to handle it situationally and, and to explain that to your players. I mean, for example, if a PC is prone in the mud or in difficult terrain, I have no problem saying that their movement is now one square crawling. <coughs> and if they're in the mud, you would probably even invoke if they try to do some kind of a stealth check or something. Maybe. There's no way. Maybe, totally. So... As for things that alter a character's movement speed, such as the slow or surge force powers, you know they still apply, but be sure to apply them before you apply the prone condition penalty. So if I'm slowed to four squares, but then I surge and I add six squares to my speed for a total of ten, my crawl speed would be five. You know, and, and you most certainly can take two move actions while crawling, but as Dave alluded to, I would never allow a character to use the run action while prone. It, it just doesn't make sense to be able to do an all-out move in that condition. So, um, I don't know, Dave. I, I would allow a character to withdraw while prone and, yeah. and avoid that attack of opportunity. I would too. But I mean, keep in mind that that withdrawing is at uh, is is at half speed on its own. Then you're at half speed for being prone and crawling. So for most characters, since we round down in Saga, this means a crawling withdrawal speed of one square. <laughs> yeah, so, like it could be useful, but not often. Um, as for keep it. Keep together, anticipate movement, the other talents and feats that grant movement in unusual circumstances, um, and advise that a character can move their speed. Dude, the obvious intent is their walking speed, okay? If their speed is adjusted by an effect like being slowed, subjected to impaling strike, or crawling, then that is their base speed until the condition is removed. So if Noble uses anticipate movement while you're prone, you don't get to move your full speed. You get to move your crawling speed. That just makes sense. So, a little convoluted, but, um, you know, if you, if you apply logic and, and uh, struggle to make it make sense at the table, you should be just fine. There you are. All right, so uh, this brings us to our point in our show, where we're going to stop down for about four and a half minutes or so, and we're going to take a listen to episode number Ocho, The Ocho, of Le Fête Rencontre and his Species Menagerie. 
Ooh. Yes, indeed. So, put on your headphones, Gamer Nation, and take a look. Species menagerie, horn, tusk, and fur. For boys and girls to see the fat raconteurs. Species menagerie, horn, tusk, and fur. For boys and girls to see. This one's got moxie, kids. Welcome, Gamer Nation. I'm the Fat Raconteur, and this is my Species Menagerie, where we bring species from around the galaxy and study them mercilessly for your gaming needs. As per special request, we will be investigating and attempting to uncover one of Star Wars' most enigmatic races, the Chiss. These physically striking humanoids are quickly becoming one of the most iconic races in Star Wars. Not only is their blue skin and red eyes unmistakable, they were brought into the limelight by the famous Admiral Thrawn, and more recently claiming a prominent place in the Old Republic as a playable species. My time-traveling division informs me that with recent discovery of Chiss involvement in both the Cold and Great Wars of the Old Republic, it is very reasonable to find a Chiss in any era of play, even studying as a Jedi. The numbers of the Chiss are one of the most versatile, nearing that of humans. With a plus two to intelligence and a bonus trained skill at no penalty, the Chiss essentially get two bonus skills and as such can fit into any party role with relative ease. Finally, I can have that Jedi or soldier with a decent set of skills. This made it tricky for us at the Menagerie to create something extraordinary with the Chiss. They are the jack of all trades, master of none compared to other species. I sat down and thought to myself, if a Chiss can do anything, what makes it different to playing a human who are also the duodles of the universe? Well, they're the fracking Chiss. So I brushed up on my Chiss lore, no small feat, mind you, and really delved into what it feels like to play a Chiss. Chiss are calculating, pensive but deliberate in all their actions. A Chiss is someone that looks at all the options and uses his superior knowledge to execute the most tactically sound plans. The Chiss even value keen retrospect, analyzing heavily after the fact. One of the talent trees that really embodies these ideals is the anticipation talent tree for nobles found in page 19 of Galaxy at War. This tree really suits the flavor of the Chiss, a noble who reads his opponent's moves with an uncanny ability. Anticipate movement is the staple here, which allows an ally as a reaction to move their speed in reaction to an enemy moving. Get down is also great, allowing an ally to drop prone in reaction to an attack. By far, you cannot say no to summon aid, which allows your melee brutes to charge an enemy that has just moved adjacent to you. Knowledge tactics will be a nice flavorful addition to this build, and as you will start out with a minimum of 8 trained skills as a noble, it shouldn't be too much of a stretch. This is the Chiss that directs with superior knowledge and incomparable intellect and intuition. Great talentry for the Chiss. If you want to take your Chiss down a more martial path, then I highly recommend looking at the mercenary talent tree found on page 28 of the Force Unleashed campaign guide. I highlight once more my absolute favorite talent, Commanding Presence, which not only gives a minus two to will defense, no questions asked to all opponents within six squares, until the end of the encounter, it also makes persuasion as a class skill, and your bonus skill should take care of that easily. Feared warriors and the great talent, when you drop a foe to zero hit points, make a persuasion check against will against all opponents, and they take a minus two penalty to all attack rolls. 
I can see now the chiss soldier who takes down targets with such precision and ruthlessness that his enemies simply wither under his gaze. The chiss mechanically, it's like playing a human, but you must honor the legacy of this cunning and calculated race. If you ask a chiss what they want for dinner, they'll pause for a complete second to think, then answer without a hint of hesitation. If you ask a chiss to dance, they'll execute it in such a flawless manner it scares you. Well, that's it for today, folks. Again, if you have any requests, questions, comments, or flattery, send it all in a PM to the Fat Raconteur on D20 Radio's forums. And as we say around here, it doesn't matter if you're black or white. Just don't be Gungan. Great build. That was great. Good work, TFR. Fantastique, as they say in France. Uh, And now... We have, well, this is going to be, um, this is going to be something interesting, but let's go. I like it. Chancellor, request a motion to suspend the rules. You are going to suspend the rules? Shut up, Sasha! Motion granted. Ah, yes. Suspending the rules once again. So, I know we just did a suspending of the rules last episode. Well, you know, last episode was so long ago. It is. And darn it, we got a really good reason to do it again. By golly. So, uh, listen to this, would you? And uh, I'm going to try and play two bits at the same time, so uh, bear with me. Hi all, this is Douglas N with a small bit for suspending the rules. Seduction of the dark side. A player with a 4 sensitivity feat and no dark side points can choose to gain one dark side point in order to add one force power with the dark side descriptor to his force power suite for one round. If this force power isn't used in the same round it's been added to the suite, it is lost, but the dark side point remains. In my game, players are extremely wary of the dark side, and with this house rule the temptation is huge. No player has used the rule yet though, what do you think? Thanks for your opinions GMs, and may the force be with you. So like, dude. Seduction of the dark side. What a freaking great house rule, man! I am, I am. Um, w- there are two things that I noticed out of this. All right. Okay. First, I really didn't realize how cool Douglas N sounds. He sounds awesome. He really does. That, <laughs> that Northern European thing is just is too cool. Yeah, exactly. You know, just one of those. Yeah. Anyway, so uh, yeah, I absolutely love that. And two, the rule is fracking awesome. Yeah. It's in, automatically. It's in the it, GM I, I, Dave I book. It. Yeah, I love it. I like the fact that the player doesn't have to be trained and use the Force, or even have the Force training feet. They just have to have Force sensitivity. Yeah. That, means that, it, that means a character with no Force training at all can call upon their, their dark emotion to, to gain the power of Force lightning or dark rage. You yeah, know? yeah it's, it's akin to, you know, have you ever made anything happen because you were so mad? Yeah. You know? Oh, yeah. This is a great way to represent how seductive the dark side is for novices. 
Um, and, 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 and the reason why training is so important to become a, a solid force user on the right path. Um, yes. Also, dude, even if, you're a, even if you're an experienced force user and you happen to be at wit's end near defeat and you're willing to step into darkness in order to ensure victory by blowing lightning out somebody's, you know, <laughs> it's, it's tempting. It's very tempting. So, ah, what a slippery slope you, you, uh, you enter into, though. You you do, and keep in mind that the player using this rule, the player will most likely get at least two dark side points for doing this. Okay, certainly one for adding the power, and the other for merely using it. It is a dark side power after all, and um, I, I really yep. like that. Yep. Ah, yes, as the chat room is so aptly unnoticed, we're eating on the air. I am not. I am. Yeah, you always eat on the air. They can't see you, though. You ninny. I'm not eating. I can't eat. Eating on the air. Hey, Chuck's online. Let's it is. I had some it. soup like an hour ago. <laughs> hey, man. At least you had some soup and it didn't come back to see you yet. So. Soup. <laughs> it's always a good thing. Soup. Shoop. But excellent house rule, Douglas, and thank you very much for submitting it. I love getting in uh, those those bumpers like that and then the call-ins. Um, and, of course, you know, if you guys want to send anything to us via voicemail, you can, of course, call the Lusa line, 206-600-5872. L-U-S-A. Or you can just email us an MP3 like Douglas did. So That's right. Or beam in using a transwarp uh, beaming Wrong system. theory. Wrong system. Oh, right. Yeah. You know, uh, I digress for just a second, but how fracking cool was Scotty in, in in the reboot of Star Trek? I mean... Simon Pegg is brilliant. I mean... I, I wish he were in the film more. Yeah, I know. I'd, I'd rather not take sides. <laughs> I'd rather not take sides. <laughs> That's greatness. This All right. Exci- this ship's exciting. It's exciting. Ah, <laughs> uh, Yes. Anyway, yeah, I can't wait to, you know, obviously they've got to have more, and I just, I can't wait. Yeah, I uh, I put that uh, that fine film on uh, my iPad. Yes, I have an iPad now. When did you get an iPad? I got an iPad on Tuesday in Richmond. Wednesday in Richmond. Oh, you dink! I walked into a Best Buy and I was like, you know, if they have an iPad here, because nobody has be- has has iPads. I figured, you know, we're in Podunk, Richmond, Virginia. If they have an iPad here, I'm gonna buy one. And the team was like, yeah, right, sure you are. We walked in, and they had iPads. And I bought one. Oh wow, that's cool, dude! It's fantastic, man. Especially I mean, since like, I, like uh, iPad Two's coming out this summer, though. I no, the Two's already out. Oh, okay, is that what you got? No, oh. no, I, I got a screaming deal on an older one that was uh, that a dude had opened and like used for a day and then returned, and so I wound <laughs> up getting a freaking iPad for uh, for two hundred ninety nine dollars. So that's uh, not bad. Go eat that with a stick, you know? It's just your sixteen gig Wi Fi, but still, who cares? Still, I've been really wanting to get one, man. It's like, because I want to get an e-reader, but if I'm going to go ahead and plop down a couple hundred bucks for an e-reader, I might as well spend the extra hundred bucks and get an iPad. Yeah, dude, it's, it's, uh, it's amazing. My daughter's already stolen it. <laughs> so, you know. Don't let her get away with that. Oh, I know. But it's fantastic to be able That's to. That's the uh, ultimate gaming aid. You know that? I know, dude. And here's, here's the best part, right? So I, uh, I had a Bothan spy infiltrate the American Airlines network, and I have a code that I can use to get free Wi-Fi on the plane. Right. And um, so there I was at 33,000 feet streaming Netflix <sighs> on my iPad. 
That's wicked. Yeah, that was uh, that was something else entirely, dude. Now, I couldn't believe, actually, quite frankly, that I had that kind of bandwidth in the air. But, um, hey, it wasn't the greatest of all. You know, it, it didn't look like it looks when I sit in my bedroom on my Wi-Fi on my, Wi-Fi, on my Fios network, but uh, it was a little grainy, but it worked. Hmm. So, yeah, it was awesome. Anyway, I digress for just a second because I know we're not going to have a post-show, and uh, <laughs> it's really kind of fun. So uh, we'll uh, we'll take another step down for just a couple of minutes, and we will listen to Admiral Phil, GM Phil, Darth GM, lots of names. Fragments from the Rim, episode number 76, coming at you live right now. My lords, welcome to Fragments from the Rim. What is thy bidding, my masters? Darth GM here with the 76th installment of Fragments from the Rim. I'm heading back to the Unknown Regions for a feat that, well, it scares the crap out of me. Which is appropriate, because it's called Frightening Cleave. You need to have a Strength of 13, Power Attack, Cleave, and a Base Attack bonus of plus 4 to take this feat. It's also a bonus feat for soldiers. Given these requirements, any 4th level soldier built for melee combat could take advantage of this feat. Any Jedi built for melee combat could too. It would just take some creative character building. What this feat does is immediately after you use the Cleave feat, Each enemy within six squares of you and within line of sight takes a minus one penalty to their reflex defense, attack rolls, and skill checks against you until the end of the encounter. This penalty stacks to a maximum of minus five. This effect is a mind-affecting effect. If you're a rampaging Wookiee with a Vibroblade, or a droid-wrecking Jedi with a lightsaber, you can potentially layer on the pain to a major villain by ruthlessly eviscerating their minions before them. And one thing that concerned me, and always has about Cleave, is that it's hard to use round after round. As you go up in levels, the opponents get tougher, the major villains get meaner. That makes it really tricky to be the one to drop a target and have another enemy nearby to cleave into. Plus, if you're obeying the list, your GM has spread out the foes and kept them from clustering up too much to really hinder how potentially nasty this feat could be. That being said, you could still get some good mileage out of this feat with a little help from your friends. If you have a force-using buddy who likes to toss people around with move object, get on their good side and talk them into constantly moving opponents into adjacent squares to you, injuring them, and letting you finish them off. If you're toe-to-toe with a Sith warrior, you can keep dispatching his minions, cleave into the Sith warrior, and impose a cumulative penalty to them, lowering their defenses to your attacks, hindering their use-the-force checks against you, and distracting their attacks so they have a greater chance of missing. Maybe this feat isn't scary. Maybe it's just a Ah, well. On that note, we'll see you next time, Gamer Nation. This is Darth GM, wishing you 20 side up and 1 side down. Okay, what was that? Whiskey Tango Foxtrot is what that was. I'm guessing that that was part of his audio file that he didn't even know was there. <laughs> I don't know. I may have actually run my accidentally run my mouse over something. Oh, wow! <laughs> that yeah, you might have you might have had a uh, a natural one on your used computer check there. Holy cow! I'm sorry to ruin the end of that. <laughs> oh wow! Well, there's one way to find out. Okay. And distracting their attacks so they have a greater chance of missing. Maybe this feat isn't scary. Maybe it's just mean. Ah, well.
On that note, we'll see you next time, Gamer Nation. This is Darth GM, wishing you 20 side up and 1 side down. You have been listening to Fragments from the Rim and Transmission. Yep, I've decided, I've decided that it wasn't him. That right there, as Dono says, is the quality of production of the Order 66 podcast. <laughs> the quality production quality of the Order 66 podcast? Quality production quality of the Order 66 podcast. Ah, bite me. <laughs> Just, and all those got it right. Yay, you, you guys want errors in the show because it makes the show more collectible. That's right. See, it's like, uh, yeah, exactly. It's like White Lightning's. If you're still collecting Johnny Lightning, and if you are, <laughs> go kill yourself. <laughs> yeah, remember when it used to be drink whenever we had an error on the show, and now it's drink. Not, it's become so freaking not happening that we never have errors on the show. It's rare. Now, and all of a sudden we have one, and it's like, <laughs> and we don't even bother to go back and clean it up. Oh, pathetic are we. Yeah, it just doesn't happen anymore. It does, but not really. When it does happen, it becomes a point of conversation, so we want to keep it. Right. Yeah, it's like a new pet. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, so, uh, you know, with that... Ah, yes. Aha, uh-huh. so <clears throat> that would mean that it's time for the meat. It is, it is time for the meat. So a, a while ago, we, we received a request from our very own Fat Raconteur, uh, who made a good show request that was then echoed by numerous listeners. He asked us to delve into the bases and battle stations chapter of Galaxy at War. Um, Gaw introduced an entirely new GM mechanic to the game, the ability to quickly create an encounter area with easily manageable and balanced statistics that affect the threat level of foes, the PCs face, the, the toughness of hazards, even the skill checks the PCs make, all related to the facility or the area within which the encounter or, or series of encounters occurs. The Bases and Battle Stations toolkit was clean, it was concise, it was brilliant. It's an amazing system that shaves time and effort off the job of the GM while helping hone tighter and more balanced sessions for the players. Bottom line, I mean, Dave, we, we, talking today about it, we pretty much agree this is worth digging into. Yep. Here's the problem. There's a lot, and I do mean a lot. 28 pages of it. Which, in and of itself, is not a problem. But, but every page is, is, is filled with, you know, things that need to be talked about. So we can't just do one show on it. Exactly. It just can't be done. So, why try? We're going to do bases and battle stations justice, boys and girls, the right way. And this means... Ah, uh, what does it mean? It means, um, well... This. Bases and pedal stations. Cody lives. <laughs> We are pleased to welcome you to the very first of several segments that will be digging deep into the Durasteel shells of bases and battle stations system. We're going to talk about how to use the battle station toolkit to the best of your ability, walking through creation, CL assignment, and the intricacies of interior locations, defensive and computer systems, hazards, and expected threats. 
So fire up your holo projectors, boys, and pay attention as we cut through the bulkhead in this first installment of Bases and Battle Stations. Fat Raconteur just had a nerdgasm. Good for him. See him in the chat room there. <laughs> <laughs> so I put in a request. I'll get multiple new episodes and a new drill. <laughs> yes. Hey, you know, well, what can we say, man? It's a good request. It's just a good request. Yeah. Yeah. No, if you're like any good hitchhiker, dude, you should already have your talent. <clears throat> Definitely. Yep. All right, dude. So let, let's, let's talk about the Battle Station Toolkit. Um, our, our first segment tonight is, is going to delve into the basics of the system, why, why you should use it, what preliminary factors you need to consider. You know, the, the Bases and Battle Stations chapter is more than just a collection of rules and advice. It, it's, it's a guide to creating a wide variety of adventuring settings, so don't let the name fool you. Um, nearly anything can be classified as a base or a battle station, uh, from, a, from a large capital ship to a city enclave to a crime lord's palace to a, a rebel outpost to an honest-to-goodness space station. Ah, uh, it's no moon. Yeah. Yes. So, the basics. Just so we're all on the same page here. Uh, <laughs> pun intended. Uh, <laughs> the basis and battle station chapter is found on page 137 of Galaxy at War, and this is where our discussion will begin. Now, Dave, t- talk to me, dude. Why, why, why would I want to use this toolkit? I mean, seriously, man, look, man, most... Most GMs have been creating encounter areas and fleshing out skill challenges and hazards, threats, and respective DCs and abilities for a very long time, long before this book came out, long before Saga Edition came out, you know, for many of us. So why should I use this system? What, what can it offer that I don't already know? What can I get out of it? Ah, uh, Danielson. Balance. 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 This is huge, dude, you know, because even the most seasoned of our GMs have trouble sometimes deciding on what threats are reasonable for an encounter area you know what hazards are too hazardous way too much what's too little you know you you've you spent all this time crafting your encounter and then your your pcs just blow them away because you didn't balance it mm-hmm. what dcs are needed for um, <clears throat> security systems and computers we manage often overestimate underestimate Cause encounters much too hard, much too easy. You know, I mean, the system provides a universal challenge level with associated DCs and threat levels that are balanced. So, mm-hmm. you know what? You, whoever you are, I use that very broadly, are not that awesome a GM that you cannot benefit from this. Word. Word up. This is very true. To your mother. Okay, so, so balance, that, that makes sense. Okay, what, yeah. what, what else? All right, so compilation. Compilation. All right, so there's a lot in the system for a GM to think about. You slog through three or four books to get rules for all these hazards and all these skill challenges and all these threats. You have to go literally to multiple resources, and this puts it all in a single place. Gotcha. Yes. A, a, you know, just a... Nice, nice bow on it, even. You know, like a Lexus parked outside on Christmas Day. Oh, I love those commercials. It's a central repository. (laughs) Indeed. So that saves you a bunch of time, the number three big thing, right? Uh. So that's the biggest hurdle that a lot of our GMs have, the time that's spent planning, creating encounters. So you, you look up all these disparate rules, you calculate DCs, you decide on your threats. This toolkit will save you time. 
when used properly and once you get the hang of it. Cool. So balance, compilation, time. BCT. That's what we call BCT. it. BCT. Done. Okay, so we talked about why we want to use this toolkit. So briefly, I think it's important to talk about what a battle station is and why we want to use one to begin with. Um, you know, we alluded to this earlier, but a, a base or a battle station is, is any organized area where an encounter can take place. Um, but there's some key features that, that make up a battle station in this system, which are, are things that a GM is going to want to try and harness or, or promote, things they want to try and look into that causes them to use this toolkit to begin with. Um, the first is diversity. This, this is the key to what makes a base or a battle station. It's also in key to, to ensuring your party is happy and has something for everyone to do. You know, B&Bs aren't just a, a map area filled with threats. The, the toolkit ensures that when you create a base, it's populated with, yes, threats, but, but also hazards, personnel, computer systems, and much more. This provides an easy framework to give your party flexibility, letting them fight their way through, talk their way through, or sneak their way through the area. You let them decide. With this toolkit, you're, you're not stuck in the mud trying to plan for that crazy cool idea the party just randomly came up with. Chances are you've already got that idea covered. And that's the beautiful core purpose of, of uh, using the bases and battle station system. Yeah. So I, I, I ask you this. Mm. What's my motivation? <laughs> Are you a cheesy screen actor? Yeah, sort of. Your motivation oh, is cash. I'm a wannabe. <laughs> I'm a wannabe. What's my purpose? What's my purpose? This is a good question. Determining purpose, and this is where we start our discussion tonight, uh, the very first step to planning and building your battle station is, is defining the purpose of it. Now, I'm not talking about what it's used for in the Star Wars universe. I'm talking about what you, the GM, are going to use it for in the campaign from a meta story process. Uh, this is integral to the, the, the process of building a, a battle station because it will determine how much time and effort the GM spends crafting it. You have to consider the amount of time the station will appear in a game, its significance to the overall campaign, and to the adventure at hand. And there's a few core options, um, four specifically, that a, a, a station can have in terms of its purpose. Dave, hit us up with the first one. Okay, so purpose number one. Purpose. Number one. All right, this is a single adventure location. Probably the most common way you'll be using it. You're going to use it once. It's designed to be visited only for that adventure. The, the heroes probably will never see it again. Okay, fair enough. So if, if, if I'm... This seems to be pretty common, man. If I'm, if I'm making a single adventure location, what, what things do I need to watch out for? Yeah, so you've got to make it story-centric, right? So that, to, to say that it should cater to the needs of the story. Okay. So, you know, this means <clears throat> that you can feel free to sacrifice a little bit on the details to meet the needs of the adventure at hand. If you okay, examples. Yeah, if you average um you know, say, let's say your average <clears throat> imperial listening post wouldn't have an auto defense system. But the story calls for it. Who cares? Put it in there. <laughs> right on. Okay. All right. So if the point of the adventure is to rescue a noble from a prison colony, then spend some time fleshing out cell blocks and security guards and a little switch that you can say, uh, largely very dangerous. 
The rest is less important. Got it. All right. Uh, third. <laughs> if you have more than five dogs that get killed when your porch falls. No, I'm sorry. If the point of the adventure is to destroy the prison colony, then flesh out the self-destruct mechanism or the station's weak points. And who really cares how the prison cells actually function? Right. You know? So the story, the story it's the same station, but the story itself determines what you spend time fleshing out. Right. And remember, always remember, right? Okay, this is, this is key point number two here, that this is a one-shot disposable battle station. Your players probably will never see it again, so the details, like the administrative staff and the security guards, are probably irrelevant, unless they need to be integral to the story. Right on. All right, so don't, don't feel bad about providing an easy means to totally destroy the place because that's <laughs> what it's there for. Oh, hey, look, I found this red button. What does it do? Auto-destruct begins in 27 seconds. Oh, wow. <coughs> okay, but don't make it that easy, but you know. Exactly. So the, the single adventure location, it's got to be the most common station out there. The next option out there for, for purpose is the multiple adventure location. This is really, you know, the, the, the gambling palace slash mining facility in the clouds, the, the central shipping hub complex on Coruscant. You know, so, some stations are meant to be a bit more permanent. Yes. And, and this can get tricky. Uh, you know, many GMs will often create stations that they intend for the players to visit again. But reckless players can destroy those plans. <laughs> yeah, like we kind of blew up Cloud City. <laughs> yes, you kind of did. Um, so you, you have to make certain upfront design choices for multiple adventure locations. Um, the first big point, they need to be built to last. Basically, D- Dave, players like to blow things up. <laughs> nah. They, they really do. Never so, met one. Never met one. Never met one. You, you're going to need to plan for that. You're going to need to ensure that your multiple adventure station is hardy and strong enough to withstand almost anything the party can throw at it. You know, cover, cover vent shafts to prevent tampering. Seal off reactor cores with blast doors. Make, make command centers guarded by hardcore computer or security systems. Um, make it to where it's not easy to destroy the place so it can be there for them to come back to it. Or provide a means to destroy the station that's really a trap. A trap! It's a trap! So, when your players come back the, the, you know, to, the, to this particular station later on, uh, <clears throat> the next point to consider for a multiple adventure location is to keep it fresh. If your heroes are visiting this place more than once, never, ever have them walk the same halls twice. The next time they visit, have them enter new areas that are different from the prior adventure. Um, that's a big deal. Absolutely, dude. I agree with you 100%. If we ever went back to that, remember that space station where we had all the rat ghouls? Yeah. If we ever went back there and we had to do the same run around that circular thing. How boring. Yeah. You know, we kind of, I mean, although it would be fresh with new threats or whatever, you know, take us to a different part. It's still boring. Yeah. So on a related note, you want to keep it fresh, Dave, but you also want to carry over prior actions. So to keep things fun and exciting, make the prior adventure actions undertaken by the party have a real effect on the station when they return. Okay? If, if the heroes burrowed a secret tunnel under the base that remained undetected, it's probably still there. But if the heroes blasted through a wall to get in last time, that's probably been patched by now and probably has a ramped up security detail on that weak point. You know what I mean? Yes, sir. Um, you know, 
like stolen security codes or computer backdoors have probably been updated at this point. Yeah, yeah. So, um, remember that <laughs> and make it sensical. Um, now, the last piece for the, the multi-adventure location that we need to talk about is, is to allow for the finale. And, and this, is, this is the Cloud City you're talking about, Dave, when, when you get right down to it. Eventually, the heroes will probably visit the station for the last time. Make this an exciting climax to a portion of the campaign. You know, give them give them access to previously restricted or highly dangerous areas. Build up to destroying the place if need be. You know, let the heroes gain knowledge and, and set events into motion over time. Um, but it, it's okay for a multi-adventure location to be destroyed, just not immediately. Yeah. So. Mm. Okay. So what's next? On our location menagerie, we've got... The single adventure location, the multiple adventure location. How about the background location? Hmm. Yeah. It, you know, it may think it may be a little bit odd to consider, right? But I think it's important to think about. Some of these stations will never, ever feature prominently in an adventure, but they can be an integral part of the campaign. So, a guild house, a central city square, the Jedi Temple, a, the, the Senate Building. They're more set pieces. You know, they're flavor material. Yeah. They're not necessarily a place you're going to have an encounter. Although it doesn't mean it won't happen eventually, but for now, it is what it is. Right. You know, often it's a, it could be the base of operations for the heroes or, you know, a common setting they receive missions or information from. So what's, okay. what's important about a background location, I ask you? Um, easy access. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, I would imagine most places, uh, you know, background locations are going to be really light and internal security, uh, much more accessible from the outside. They're, they're probably pretty easy to navigate, too, without complex passages or, or computer lockouts. Right. Uh, what else? Dynamic areas. You know, ba- background stations can be tough because the GM honestly may not know if the station will become an encounter area during the adventure. You know, players, players can take some really odd turns and, and do things you really wouldn't expect. So this is why we bring up background locations in the toolkit. It's important to have a baseline plan for the area because even if nothing ever happens there, you get the hooks to spend five minutes and flesh out the hardcore encounter details if the PCs take a turn that leads that way. Right. You never know. You put the thing in there, and you never expect them to go in there and a Jedi to start throwing the Senate at somebody. Yes. <laughs> but it, it could very well happen. So That's right. Prepare for it. Well, the fourth and final um, battle station purpose would be the campaign objective. Ah, that's no moon. That's correct. This station represents the culmination of an entire campaign. The station itself is usually the focal point of the campaign, and it is a key part of the story development. Um, Dave, what, what, what key things do you need to know for a campaign objective station? Well, you need to, I would say, you need to build adventures around the station. Not right? too much on it, but around right. it. Yeah, so... You need to build the station out, right? So you need to have adventures securing the intelligence about the station, you know, the data tapes in R2, right? The, um, you know, keeping the Death Star in mind, right? Best example of this. Yeah, you go there, you escape, and you return with the knowledge to have a big cinematic battle and destroy it. 
There you go. So that's how you put the hooks in to take the time to be able to build it out, right? So you build the storyline out in such a way that you go, you may not even have to go as a party. It may be the Bothan spies have gotten us this information, right? You know, or something, you know, whatever. Whatever the case is, you need to build to the climax. Split your party. You've got one party down on the ground on a forest moon. You've got another one in space. Ah, does this ring a bell? Uh, I don't know. They yeah, might. no, this makes sense. Yeah, it might ring a bell or two here or there. And then you've got one sole guy trying to convert his father inside the battle station. Yeah. There about, you go. How about that? But those are the four options for, for, for battle station purpose, and that's the first thing you've got to consider before you think about what the place is used for, how it looks, anything. You have to think about how it's going to play into the campaign itself. Ah, so now that I have purpose what remains i must define what does it do what does it do what is your name what is your favorite color (laughs) you've got to determine function the the next step in planning and building your station is defining the true star wars universe function of the place you know what is it at the core you should think about the function of your station in four broad categories yeah, righto. And this is function over form, ladies and gentlemen. Function much more important in the Star Wars universe. Indeed. What is, what is, our, first, uh, what is our first function? All right, so the first thing you need to look at, what are the combat mechanisms? So, well, that's, uh, the, that's, that's, the, that's the station. It is. That's the function, the combat mechanism function. Yes, it, it, that was what brings, that is the battle station in battle station. Exactly. Okay? <laughs> I mean, seriously. You know, uh, it lives up to the label. That's ex- it is what it is. It's a battle station. It's not a weapon in its own right, although it could be, potentially. But it plays host to massive defensive or offensive forces. Star Destroyers. Golan. Defense. Platforms. Love those things. Planetary defense stations. Military space stations. All good examples of that. Right. They're serving as a staging point for the military and this is probably the most common station that heroes will encounter. So, okay. so, so if I've decided I've got a combat mechanism function for my station, what key points do I need to be wary of and, and think about when I'm, when I'm building it out? All right, so again, what's the function? Is this offensive or is it defensive? So what's the primary focus of your combat mechanism station, right? Offensive stations <clears throat> are going to be Bulked up on weaponry, they're going to have starfighters, bombers, anti-ship defenses. Defensive stations, however, will have very heavy shielding, defensive-type starfighters, advanced sensors, transport ships. Mm. You know, so a little bit of a different uh, build to them when you consider... But you want to think about it and define it. Yeah, exactly. So you have a defensive station with all these offensive weapons. You know, it may work. Sure, the campaign works. However, somewhere it just doesn't feel right. Mm-hmm. You know, if you were to lay it all out on a storyboard. Also, yeah, exactly. make sure that this, you know, as, as opposed to knowing if it's offensive or defensive, that this needs to be a serious challenge. So these stations usually work into the climax of an adventure and should be and provide serious and deadly threats to a party. Yeah. Combat mechanisms are, are pretty rough. You know, you usually want the CL to be one or two higher than, than you normally would make it if you want a balanced encounter for the party. 
Yeah, no, 100%, dude. Mm-hmm. What about those towers? <laughs> what about those towers? Well, the next function, um, the function uh, a category, I guess, after the combat mechanism, uh, is very much a polar opposite from the combat mechanism. This is the haven. Um, a haven station is designed to be a place where a group or a government meets and really has its headquarters. I mean, more than anything else, this type of station is, is a staging point for allies or foes. You know, uh, pirate hideouts, rebel strongholds, government enclaves, Jedi temples. These, these are all havens. The key thing to note for the haven is that usually it's in the background. You know, usually unless it happens to be an enemy, strong, an enemy stronghold, um, havens are background locations, which means that the degree to which they take part in the adventure is really up to the wiles of the party and the choices they make. It reminds me of the uh, Swoop Gang hangout. Remember that? <coughs> yeah. We didn't have to go in there. We did. We kicked, we kicked our ass and stole some speeders. You, you didn't have to go in there, but you did. Yeah, we, uh, had, we had to steal the speeders. You know, you know, but I mean, there were there were other options, but you guys chose to go into that hideout. So this would have been a good example where that haven can then become a, a proper encounter-ridden battle session. So, okay. that's right, dude. So we got the combat mechanism. We got the haven. What's the third um, broad category for the function of our stations? Ah, uh, well, the super weapon. Ah, uh, this is a battle station with only one purpose. Destroy whatever it comes across. Yeah. Death Star is an obvious example, but the EU is littered, sadly, littered, <laughs> with other super weapons. Yeah, it really is. So they're similar to combat mechanism stations. The, uh, the super weapon doesn't necessarily have any overt military function other than the use of their primary weapon. Right. So... You know, take it for what it is. This is, um, I would say usually, maybe not always, but probably in the majority of, of times, a, a campaign objective. Yeah, usually a super weapon is a campaign objective station. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I would agree with that 100%. Yep, so stations like this are often the focal point of an entire campaign, the destruction by the heroes being the key. Mm. So, one piece of advice that we have for you the Order 66 podcast listener. Please try to avoid cliche. <laughs> the hardest part of a super weapon station is a problem that most Star Wars authors fail to avoid. Keeping it from becoming a contrived plot device. So, yeah. <clears throat> take care to make the station unique and carefully consider how it works and what the purpose is that it serves in the game. This is a really good point, Dave, because a lot of the EU, when you have those, you know, wow, it's super weapon of the week time, you know, it's, it's, oh, this super weapon is out there and, oh, it's so dangerous and we have to destroy it. It's been hidden all this time. Oh, it's very contrived. It's very much a plot device. When you compare something to like the Death Star, it's no, this has a purpose. We're using it to destroy planets. We've already destroyed a couple. (laughs) Yep. It's, you know, this, this is our big stick. So, you know, just try and avoid the cliche. We're going to try and turn the winning trick. Yeah. Just try and avoid the cliche. Well, the fourth and final um, function category for determining the function of your station is the utility station. This is, this is really a, a catch-all station. Um, it's usually used when other functional purposes don't apply. 
But these stations are also usually built to serve a specific function, such as a mining facility, a listening outpost, a prison. Okay. A droid factory. A droid factory. Exactly. Um, key points for the utility station. Usually utility stations are more vulnerable. Uh, so, you know, since their purpose is rarely overtly military in use, uh, these stations usually have less in the way of offensive and defensive capabilities. Unless the service they provide is rare, in which case the builders may beef up security for protection. So it's like, yes, we're a mining facility, but we mine erodium or gold. <laughs> Dead night. You know, then we're, we're probably going to have beefed up security. You know, it's a droid factory, but we manufacture droids for the Trade Federation for an upcoming hidden war that no one's supposed to know about yet. It's yes. probably going to have some beefed up security. We have a cloning <laughs> facility. Yeah, cloning facility. Great example. So just, you know, they're usually more vulnerable, but just, just keep that in mind. Next thing to consider for a utility station is to keep the function in mind. That really, more than the other stations, has to be at the forefront of your thought when you're adding areas and locations to the station. Remember, this type of station has a purpose. It needs to be a key point in its, in its design. Yeah, this can create really fun encounter areas, you know, like as a, you know, an ore processing plant um, or, or a massive power generator. It can be really cool places to have a fight. Um, but likewise, you want to scale back depending on the function as well. A listening post with a massive cell block or a battery of point defense cannons makes very little sense. Keep your design sensible to the function of the station. Indeed. So, good points. Good points all. Okay, so we've determined purpose of our station. We, we've, we fleshed that out. We've determined the function of our station, what it does. Ah, uh, now we must determine the look. What does it look like? How is it apportioned? Oh, my goodness gracious, is it decorated correctly? <laughs> we must determine the form. Um, this is the last step before crunching the numbers and really building your station. Uh, You've got to decide what physical form the station exists in. There, there's a few options here. Some are more advantageous to certain adventures. Others only make sense for certain functions. Take care to ensure that your station form makes sense. So we have various form options uh, for our, our, our space station. Um, another four, actually. Ah, yes. Hit us up with the first one. In the rule of fours, number one. The mobile space station. The mobile space station. Johnny with Hillis 17 cup holders and a <laughs> six-disc yeah. changer. Exactly. And if you really spend some bucks, you get a cappuccino machine. <laughs> All right, so... The mobile space station is perhaps the most common and flexible form that a battle station can take. Yeah. It uh, recreates terrestrial life. So the point of a mobile space station is to have the familiar features of a ground-based environment. All the comforts of home, but in space. This means they have features common to ground-based stations like turbo lifts, offices, hallways, the basic components of any building. Right on. So... Yes, and um, they're mobile, by the way. So, yeah. <laughs> That's an important keyword for the mobile space station. Yes, mobile. <laughs> uh, which means that they move, Gamer Nation. Just wanted to point that out. Very, very <laughs> useful thing for a GM to know. The station does not have to be in the same place every time if it's a multi-adventure station. So it can actually move from planet to planet, appear in any planetary system. Tracking can be an adventure in its own right. True that. You know? So, don't be afraid to hide the mobile aspect from the players. 
It may not be readily apparent, and what a shock they'll get when they return, and it's not there. <laughs> I like. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, like. hey, that's it, man. Very, very so, cool. you know, if we have mobile space stations, then let me guess, um, Chris, yeah. what we might have as well. Uh, that would be immobile space stations. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, n- not a whole lot to say here. I mean, mobile space stations are... are uh, so they're similar to mobile space stations in form and, and amenities. They just can't move, bottom line. You know, maybe they're most likely immobile space stations are anchored to a feature, such as a skyhook or a planet, okay, in the case of a defense platform. Um, the key thing here is make the reason for the immo- immobility part of the adventure. That's key. Why do the players care about the immobile station? Because they need to destroy the skyhook or attack or land on the planet the defense platform protects. There's a reason the station is immobile, and that reason has to be directly related to the hero's purpose. Yes. Works wonderfully that way. Indeed. Okay, so we got mobile space stations. We got immobile space stations. What other form options do we have? Let's see. Starships. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. All right, so don't forget about the fact that it's obvious but often overlooked that huge ships can be stations and points of conflict for continued adventure. True that. That's right. So um, will the capital ships please stand up? (laughs) All right, so um, for a ship to be a station, it has to be a capital size or larger. So otherwise, you know, it's just a ship. We have rules for that. (laughs) <laughs> we do. Yeah, there's a rule for that. Uh, the complex system of interlinking defensive measures, troops, and computer networks that the bases and battle stations toolkit serves really require a ship of this magnitude. Yeah. Yeah. They so can't we, repel yeah. ships of this magnitude. This magnitude. So we're talking Star Destroyers here, you know. Super Star Destroyers. Super Star Destroyers. Big ass ships. Totally get it. That's what we call basses. In the end, yep, yeah. See, look at Kalilia. Keep coming in with the, all the titles. You know, yeah, one thirty-one. We got rules for that. One thirty-one. Queer eye for the straight battle station. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Oh well, the the fourth um, form um, option uh, for for the form of our stations is going to be the terrestrial battle stations. Ah, as opposed to the extraterrestrial battle stations. Yes, yes. Basically, it's a building. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty basic. Basic and easy. Yeah. But don't think terrestrial stations need to be on a planet. They can be on the surface of an asteroid or even a comet. Ah, uh, yes, an outpost. That's right. Um, a few things to think about if you're deciding to build a terrestrial battle station. Um, you have no need for spacefaring equipment. You know, generally speaking, terrestrial battle stations will have the same features and amenities of their mobile counterparts, but they'll lack certain features they just don't need. Okay, like most terrestrial battle stations are not going to have a very large reactor core. They don't need the kind of power that spaceflight requires, and so they're going to have a smaller reactor. Okay. Um, easier access. Terrestrial battle stations, more than any other station, have multiple avenues of access. Play on this. Um, if you're going to have a terrestrial battle station, give the parties multiple options to to enter it. So, okay, Dave, we've talked about determining the purpose of your base or battle station. We've talked about determining the function. We've talked about determining the form. Once we have that written down, we can then move on to the next big parts of this toolkit, which we will cover 
next time. <laughs> oh, like Ryan Seacrest. We'll find out after this. Or after Howie. This. Howie Mandel would do that all the time on that. Uh, yep, yep, I know it. Open the case of show. So. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's no battle station. It's a moon. <laughs> I like it. Sterling had a good one, though, too. Yes. That's no moon. It's a plot device. But these, these crucial steps we've talked about for this episode are necessary before any other planning can take place. Next time, we're going to talk about what to do with those decisions that you've made and how to plan for your battle station CL and the first part of our specific interior locations. So stay tuned. Stay tuned for this announcement. No, not, <laughs> not really. So, you know, guys, um, as terrible as this is to say... Yeah. It seems sad, you know, that here we are an hour and 20 minutes in, and we're talking about ending the show already. Considering that you ran a four-hour epic campaign with uh, the Whitwer. I know. Whose show... Never mind, I don't know that I'm supposed to say that. Never mind! So, it's awesomeness. It is awesomeness. That was a really good show. I enjoyed it. I'm sorry you couldn't stay on for it. Yep. Yep. Uh, well, Gamer Nation, thank you for all the questions and the call-ins. I- I'm loving this listener feedback we keep getting. Um, it's always heartening, and it really gives us direction as to where we need to go. If you guys, again, want to send us any messages, either you know uh, bumpers for the show, telling us you know why you never listened to the Order 66 podcast, call in any questions for the docking bay or something to that effect, you can, of course, give a call to the Lose a Line, 206-600-5872. L-U-S-A. Loser! You can email us, gmchris at d20radio.com, gmdave at d20radio.com, and you can, of course, get to the forums at d20radio.com slash forums and post your mind. Yep. Oh, okay. Oh. Never mind. Sci-Fi announced it, so yeah, they've been renewed for a second season, for those of you that don't know. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's public knowledge. Being human. Yeah, so. Being human has been renewed, so very, very cool. It's really, really cool. Very, very cool. Also, follow us on Twitter. I am at GM Chris. Uh, I'm GM Dave. Yes. Until then, Gamer Nation, thank you, thank you, and by the way, thank you. This yes. is GM Chris wishing you peace, love, and good gaming. And uh, keep them dice rolling, and stay tuned for a little um, Easter egg from Full On Gamer. D20 Radio, where gamers roll www.d20radio.com This podcast and related websites are not endorsed by Lucasfilm Limited, 20th Century Fox, or Wizards of the Coast and are intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. The official Star Wars site can be found at starwars.com. The official Wizards of the Coast site can be found at wizards.com. Star Wars, the Star Wars logo, D20 logo, D20 system references, all named pictures of Star Wars characters, vehicles, and any other Star Wars related items are registered trademark and or copyright of Lucasfilm Limited, Wizards of the Coast, or their respective trademark and copyright holders. All original content of this podcast and its related website, including graphical, textual, audio, and visual information is the intellectual property of the Order 66 podcast. Welcome, gentle beings, to your chance to vote for some of the bands that have stepped before the judges of Galaxy Idol. Presented tonight by the resident master of the Hollow Music Net Top 20 Countdown, KCK Sim. Initial rankings and elimination rounds have been compiled from the affiliate stations on the Hollow Music Net Hollow Hits 1, Music Hollow Video, Bothan Entertainment Transmission, and the Naboo Network. 
Additional rankings were defined by combining the records of the CompNor official and prohibited music archives with recovered documents on the ISB's counterinsurgency operations. Tonight's leading entry was a performance recorded in the Echo Base Karaoke Cantina by our own galactic overlords, Emperor Palpatine and Darth Vader, Dark Lord of the Sith. Backed up by their hangar band disturbance, tune your auditory receptors to awesome and enjoy the show. Dream. And when I dream, 
Yeah. Yeah, so that's it. Dudes and dudettes and, like, other stuff. Yeah, so that was kind of fun from the uh, greatness that is Fallen Gamer. And um, I have a little surprise for you. Chris is gone, by the way. So we are indeed looking for an episode title. And I'm, I'm leaning, I'm really toward, I'm really leaning toward that... Um, Episode 131, that's no moon, it's a plot device. Yeah, yeah, you guys are saying the same thing. Uh, yeah, so I think that's what we're going to go with. What do you think? Yeah. All right, awesome. Yeah, since Chris isn't here, it's kind of hard to play this uh, <clears throat> one-manned show. You know, without the without the other thing and all that thing, but you know, I have a plan, and there is uh, there's something that I could potentially do here. Post show. This is like a total audible. I mean, 100% audible. And uh, we welcome to the show the familiar voice of Fiddleback. Why, hello there. Aha! Indeed, sir. <laughs> How is things? How is things? Well, good, dude. You know, um, I bailed out sick on the last show, and Chris went and got, uh, you know, like Sam Witwer and Chuck Hurstis and did like a four-hour show. Cool. I don't think I'm going to do a four-hour show with Fiddleback, but there are some important things that need to be brought up. And being that the Order 66 has one of the larger listener bases, for the betterment of the network, I wanted to bring you on. Awesome. And have a little bit of a off-the-cuff, very, very informal and impromptu discussion about 
the things that are happening around Star Wars The Old Republic. From what I understand now, slated for a July release. Well, that's the speculation, perhaps. Yes, indeed. <laughs> that's the only month that an EA representative has actually thrown out, is July. So... Yes, I don't. I don't speculate about release dates. Release dates anymore. He lied. Yeah, he might have. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. We got we got some cool stuff going on over on our end of things. Yes. So, and, and by over on our end of things, I mean like the guild and various other sort of things. That's what we're talking about, exactly. And I did. I joined. I joined the guild and all that stuff, you know, and, and did all that stuff on the inter- interwebs. How many members is the guild? The Order of 66, if you recall. This is the uh, Star Wars The Old Republic video game brought to you by EA and BioWare. And uh, Brian Casey, of course, the host of the Holocron, right, podcast thing. Yeah. Yes, indeed. How many members? We have uh, 54 at this very moment. 54, and we really haven't done a whole lot other than pimp it out on the boards. That is correct. Yep. So... um, We've got yeah, it's it's cool. We've got not only have we got fifty four members, but I can I can even give give you a countdown of who's decided to play what uh, what class. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, dude, that's awesome. We've got uh, we've got ten Jedi Knights, six troopers, twelve Jedi Consulars, nine smugglers, and seventeen people who just aren't quite sure yet. Nice. Count me among the uh, troopers. Count you among the troopers. Yep. Excellent. I believe that's what I answered when I did my little. You know, questionnaire Trooper thing. Poop. Yeah, <laughs> I figured that Jedi was just so cliche that I was going to go trooper. But yeah, it, you know, I, I I put myself down as a consular Jedi consular, but um, I just finished recording uh, an episode of the Holocron uh-huh. with my with my secret co-host. <laughs> and and it's only the only thing it's done is convinced me that I want to play everything. So. Uh, Yeah, this is going to be one of those uh, systems that, you know, if it sucks, I'm just going to I'm just going to quit playing MMOs forever. Because the hype around this thing is just insane. I don't think it's going to suck. I better not. I mean, it better. I I think it will be a beautiful thing that will be um, the pinnacle of MMOs for years to come. I, I think so. I think I think Warcraft. They're going to say. Wow, we really hope it succeeds. But somewhere within Blizzard, they're like, holy S. Mm-hmm. Because, the poo-poo has hit the fan. Yeah, I mean, I know, I know they redid Warcraft with this whole cataclysm, right? And, and they needed to do something because it was starting to get tired, even for the most ardent of Warcraft players. But this is still just something different. People don't have an MMO. There is no MMO on the face of gaming right now that is aside from Warcraft. I mean, yeah, you've had some come and go. You've had some good ones come up and go. But still, no one's one's gotten a foothold. No one has gotten a foothold. So. Things look very promising. Um, yeah. we, we, like I said, we just recorded an episode of the Holocron. Like mere moments before you contacted me, the final roll of the tape was uh, recorded upon. Nice. And uh, I will tell you right now that it's um, almost three hours 
of Holocron goodness. Wow. Yeah. It is, it is, I'm going to edit it up and get it posted tonight. It'll probably be somewhat late tonight, but it will be up tonight in keeping with our promises. Nice. Are you going with a brand new feed or are you appending to the feed that was already there? Um, well, here's what I've decided because of various factors. I've decided I'm going to do a brand new feed. Okay. Um, I'm going to bring all the old episodes onto that feed. Um, and just, you know, go from there. Uh, it'll require some, some, uh, resubscriptions and whatnot, but I will make all that information available in the forums. Ah, yes. And people's little ears can be pleasantly warmed to the sounds of the holocron once again. Ah, yes. Beautiful. <laughs> all right. So you guys check it out on the forums. If you haven't already, there are several guild threads that are out there for the order of 66. And... There will be renewed activity on the Holocron uh, show forums within D20 Radio slash forum. Yes. You guys check it out, dude. And if you want to sign up, please jump in our threads and sign up there. And then also, um, when I put the link up, head over to BioWare's uh, Old Republic site and sign up there as well. That way everything's nice and official looking. Nice. Yep. Awesome, dude. Yeah, that was the big surprise. I just wanted to bring you on for a little bit and kind of share what you're doing because I knew you were up to just a little bit of something, you and that cat. Mm. Yeah, uh, but it's not cat. I know. <coughs> oh, no, I mean from the guild perspective. I don't I don't know. Oh, yes. yeah. I don't know what about the podcast. I'll find out when everyone else does. Yeah, it'll be great. It'll be fun and awesome and sweet. Yes, and good. marvelous, and, joyous. All right, dude. Yes, very happy. All right, man. Thank you for coming on and hey, this you know. wonderful, po- wonderful, wonderful post show can yes. now come to Brilliant the Brilliant as always. <laughs> All right, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Take care, man. You too. All right, there he goes. Yay, applause for Brian Casey. Fiddleback, host of the Holocron with a yet-to-be-named co-host, for Star Wars The Old Republic, and it will be a fantastic show. Awesome. So with that, guys, we will say a good night and good luck. <laughs>